0: Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Melbourne around town. I'm Broadsheet's editorial director, Katja Vaktil, and the host of this guide to Melbourne. Danielle Alvarez is one of Australia's most influential chefs, and I have to admit she's one of my personal favourites. For long-time listeners of the podcast, you may remember me waxing lyrical a few episodes ago about a chorizo and chimichurri dish that I ate at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival's regional edition, and that it was one of the best things I ate last year. That was a Danielle Alvarez dish. She's just been tapped to run the food show at Australia's most iconic landmark, and she's got a new cookbook out. Her first cookbook, Always Add Lemon, which is an excellent name and something I think we should always do when we're cooking, was a big hit. She joined Features Editor Emma Joyce today for a chat.
1: I have a copy of Your Second Baby in my arms. It feels very precious. (laughs) Your Second Baby is, of course, your second cookbook, Recipes for a Lifetime of Beautiful Cooking, which is out on October 31st, just in time for Christmas. Yes. It's one you've been working on since COVID lockdowns, which is a time that we don't tend to want to reflect on too much. It feels like it was not that long ago and maybe we're still recovering somehow Mm. but I feel like it's such an important story for this particular cookbook so I'd love for you to tell us
2: about those days where were you who were you well and what were you doing well I you know at the time I was working at Fred's restaurant in Paddington in Sydney and the restaurants were all shut down so I was at home with my wonderful partner Dan and look I think that time as scary as it was as a chef who had kind of consistently just been working for the past 15 years was actually a welcome pause and ultimately has like changed the course of my professional life. But but in that moment, I really appreciated the time just like in my kitchen, pottering around. Like that felt really safe and that felt like a a good place to be in in spite of the chaos going on around. And so that book and the ideas that are some of the ideas that are in the book, there's a lot of new recipes as well were born of that time of like limited availability of ingredients. You know, we were all running out to stores, and like there wasn't flour, toilet paper, yeah. or there wasn't flour, there wasn't dried yeast, there wasn't all these things that people were like latching onto as projects for cooking. Um, so I really had to adapt, and I think just limit my pantry, limit what I, I had available to me, but I still wanted to eat delicious food because that was like the highlight of our day was sitting down to a really nice meal. And that's the very purpose of this cookbook mm. is bringing together the
1: recipes that you would share with home cooks that shouldn't be intimidating. Mm. And you can also get those ingredients easily or yeah, at least from a supermarket. That's it.
2: I mean, my one of my number one goals with the with the book was if you got the book and you saw a recipe that you wanted to make that night, that you would be able to get the ingredients really easily. And be able to do that. And so, in contrast to like my first book, which I think was more like Chef Me, you know, a lot of those ingredients are really beautiful and seasonal. You can only get them at farmers markets. And in this case, I really just wanted to give everyone something to not be afraid of, something that was really accessible.
1: It's also a really personal cookbook, or at least that's what the storytelling around the cookbook, and I'll come to your co author soon. It's personal because you share these stories of maybe when you made a particular chocolate cake and dropped it at your friend's doorstep Mm. for their birthday. Mm. But it was COVID lockdown, Mm. so you couldn't actually interact
2: with your friend. Can you tell us why you chose those recipes? I love food that tells stories. I love food that is emotional. Like for me, food is emotional. There's, There's memories locked up in food. There's memories locked up in smells and flavors and tastes. And I like food that makes you feel something. And like stories like that with the chocolate cake, I mean, it just, besides the fact that it's a delicious cake and it's easy to make, it was also about like the idea of sharing, especially baked stuff. That was such a nice thing for me to be able to do when I had no connections to people, when we couldn't see our friends and our family, I could still bake something and leave it on a friend's doorstep. And that was just like the most soul-filling, happy thing that I could do in my day. Um, and I think it just goes to show the power of what food can do. So that, you know, there's a story in there about that specifically, but that whole chapter is baking for karma, how baking can uh, be the good thing that you put out in the world and hopefully you get back. It feels like that section, you're more prescriptive
1: yeah, in the sense that you're like, I've, I've worked on these recipes. Yes. Like, please
2: follow them because... Well, that's a good point because baking... are not as forgiving. Well, they're just not... A, it's a formula. And there, there is actual like science happening as to why a cake would rise with that amount of baking powder or whipping your eggs to a certain stiffness, etc. And if you just do what you think is right and you're doing it by taste like you might do with savory food, you may not have a good result. Which is why with baking, I always say follow the recipes. At least here we use a scale versus the U.S. where <laughs> I grew up and everything is in cups and it's just that's a, not a good way to bake. You should have a really successful result. I'm glad you said that because I'm definitely a novice baker. And every time I go to cups, I'm like, which cup? I don't even know know which cup. (laughs) Yeah, don't. And look, I see that a lot of great bakers that I follow in the US are now writing their books in metric, which I just think is like, it's it's how it should be. Just get a little scale, people. It's not that hard. They're not that expensive.
1: Something that you have mentioned in the savory part, because there's so many more ideas there for like a midweek meal or something you might want to... Cook over mm. a longer period of time, where you have said, if I could give you a measurement for salt, mm. I would. but I don't want to be prescriptive about that. Mm. Why is that? Why do you find that particular ingredient something that you don't want to attribute to someone in the recipe?
2: I think if you start giving um let's say salt in grams, it starts to feel really like like a disconnect for me with the food there's no reason for you to taste it along the way. If someone tells you exactly how much salt to add at what time, and you can kind of just, I guess, leave it till the end and it's not seasoned properly. You've missed a moment to identify what's happening with the food you're cooking. I really want people to connect with the food that they're cooking. Otherwise you could just order in, you could go out to eat, whatever. If you're going to take the trouble to cook, I think it should be an enjoyable experience and you should be Tasting your food along the way, that should be really enjoyable and it'll help you learn. It'll help you be like, no, okay, I think this needs salt now because I can taste that something's not singing right there. And, you know, these are lessons that you don't learn unless you do. Can we talk about
1: singing and the items in your pantry that you go to to help make something sing when you're Mm -hmm. like, I'm putting together this dish and everything is working, but maybe there was that. Yeah, Maybe there's something you want to add. What are those ingredients? What's in the pantry?
2: So there's a big section in the book about this um, because I believe that a well-stocked pantry is like, that is going to get you through a lot of weeknights. And the things that I regularly turn to are some good soy sauce, salted capers, anchovies in the tin, uh, the brown anchovies, not the white anchovies, assorted vinegars, always olive oil. I use a lot of olive oil in my kitchen. And some nice flaky and fine sea salt. I have uses in my kitchen for both.
1: I really like in that section that you've said you've you've struggled to like limit what (laughs) you have in your pantry. It's not something that's as easy as it sounds when you're working across lots of different recipes that have French influence, Spanish influence, uh, all over Italian influence, Mm. Cuban influence. Can you tell me about the dish with sardines, a sardine pasta that you It kind of ignited some memory for you?
2: Yeah, so I, I grew up in a house of people that loved food and loved cooking. But One of my early childhood memories was we would take a holiday to this little town called Naples in Florida, U.S., not Naples, Italy. Um, and it was on the beach. And I just remember in the afternoon, my mom and my grandfather sitting together. They'd have a little cocktail and they would open up a little tin of sardines and eat that with some saltine crackers. And I used to think it was disgusting disgusting. disgusting like the smell I couldn't I didn't like fish at the time this is when I was a kid and then as you grow up and especially being a chef you're exposed to so many things and I've tasted you know I try to taste as much as possible and I've really grown to love tins of sardines so now like every time I open one I think of them and that's a very beautiful memory for me of a great time in my life but I've incorporated them into this pasta dish which is my sardine spaghetti and it's mostly pantry ingredients but it's got currants and fennel and onions and garlic and tomato and it just makes the sardine tin really shine like it's in there but it's not fishy it's just and sardines as we all know are super healthy so the more that I can try to get them into something that doesn't taste overly fishy then everyone loves it maybe that was why your mom kept trying I think a little taste yeah well I guess they knew something back then that I wasn't aware of You worked
1: with your friend Libby Travers to bring this book to life. What did Libby help extract from you, I guess, in terms of your memories and the way that you think about food?
2: So much. I mean, without her, this book would not be what it is. And I'm so proud of it. She was like, I say to her, you're like that annoying little kid that's like, but why? But why? But why? Every time I would say, you know, in the recipe, you do this and then you do that. And she'd be like, but why do you do it in that order? And what does that ingredient do? And it really forced me to identify my whys. Like a lot of times as chefs and cooks, we do things because that's how someone taught us, not because we've figured out that why, just because we're sort of just passing on that tradition. And it really made me stop in my tracks and think about those things. And so we've identified a lot of those things in the book and even some things I realized I was doing and they didn't really make a difference.
1: I'm so grateful that you have included active time and inactive time in your recipes. Oh great. And what you're saying by that is that this means you have to chop something and the you know you need to spend 25 minutes at a counter. Yeah. and an hour away from it but still in your house yeah. so that it doesn't burn down. I need that information more than I need anything else. And I also really love that you've got this section kitchenalia where you're telling me do I have that item in my mm. house to be able to make the rest of mm. this recipe? Because I find that when I come to a recipe, if I don't have something, it feels like it excludes me. Totally. So what was your process in kind of figuring out how a home cook would do this compared to a very professional chef?
2: Yeah. Well, firstly, I want to say that that active and inactive time was just based on like feedback. I had a friend back home who said, we got all our friends together to make this incredibly long recipe for my first book the lasagna and they didn't realize how long it was going to take so they started making it at like dinner time basically and they ended up not being able to eat until like midnight and that, and that just mortified me so i was like right next book i write i'm going to tell people exactly how long it's going to take so they can plan obviously i mean it seems simple but i think it's a good thing and that probably is the chef background like I know I need to have dinner ready at six o'clock because that's when people are coming to the restaurant or whatever. So I hope that's something that, although it may come from that place of um, a chef background and just wanting to plan things out a bit more, I hope it's just helpful. And it gives you that confidence that you don't have to like read through the recipe several times before you get started. Here's the meat of what you really need to know at the start, and you can just get going. I definitely feel like you have understood what a home cook
1: is going to do when they're approaching a dish, mm. compared to I would like to emulate what I can get in a restaurant. But that was intentional, right? You didn't want to emulate what people can get at, say, Fred's, where you were the founding chef.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, this is all about the home cook. None of these recipes were written in professional kitchens. These were all written, you know, baked in a domestic stove and baked in, on a domestic stove top. Like none of these things require big billowing flames of walks and all these things. Like No one at home is going to have that stuff. So that was super important. I just wanted it to be something that the home cook got a lot of value from and it enhanced their cooking life. Now that you've been appointed
1: culinary director at Sydney Opera House, what does that really mean?
2: What do you do now for them? So I'm the culinary director of the event spaces of the Opera House. So A lot of people don't know, but within the Opera House, there are certain event spaces that you can hire for functions. Maybe it's birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, corporate events, whatever. So in that role, I'm writing menus for those spaces. So as it stands, there are menus that are already in existence there. My menus run alongside them. So guests can inquire about having my menus at their events. So if you got married at the Opera House, your I I could potentially do your menu. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, that meal, which is fantastic. Yeah, and and I'm also doing um, a lot of bespoke things as well. So if a client wants something that is not captured in those menus, we can certainly work on that. But I'm really excited about also having an impact on the produce that is served in those menus. I've tried to be such a champion for small farms and local farms, and I've those are the people that inspire me and inspire my food. Events are really, really different to that there isn't that adaptability of a restaurant where you can just change the menu on a dime. So it's a challenge that I'm working on and I'm working through, but I'm excited about the potential for what we can do. And look, even if I'm just making small changes and down the track, we're making bigger changes with the kinds of products that we serve there, then I see that as a win.
1: What is it about professional cooking
2: that you return to and you enjoy doing the most? it's two things actually. Firstly, it's that you have a team that you're working with. I love that thing of like everyone working towards the same goal. I get a lot of reward from that process. So I love that part of kitchens. And the other side of it is, and and Fred's was so open. So I was immediately seeing all of the guests, but I, I like that interaction with people. I like that feedback. I mean, I can't think of too many other things where you have someone like skillfully making something in front of you, putting it down and, you know, you being able to say like, yes, I like this. No, I don't like this. Or, you know, like it's a really bizarre thing um, to be looking at someone who has just eaten your food. And most of the time, it's a lovely reaction that feeds me in a way that mm, a lot of other things can't or won't. So I keep coming back to those experiences because those are, in real life. And you can't replicate that online. As much as I love sharing recipes on Instagram or whatever, and having someone say, oh, I made that. And that was so delicious. Like that feeds me in another way, but it doesn't, I don't think it replicates real life experiences.
1: And finally, what are you going to have for dinner tonight?
2: Oh my God. Well, tonight I'm actually at a function at the opera house. So cooking? (laughs) Yeah. So I'll probably just be eating like A bowl of rice in the background (laughs) that's or an errand canopy or something
1: (laughs) that's very relatable just snacking as you go yeah whatever is available i
2: mean chefs we it's so funny we prepare these amazing meals and then you know we barely get the chance to feed ourselves but that's just how it is well the cookbook recipes for a lifetime of beautiful cooking is published
1: by murdoch books and it's available from 31st of october thank you so much
0: that's it for today If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends and leave us a review. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening now.
2: A Listener Production.